Thank you, Judah. Thank you, kids, for worshiping with us this morning and uh, helping us engage in worship this morning. Uh, we are continuing our journey through John and seeking to get a clear picture of Jesus. I hope that's happening as we walk through and we kind of turn the, the diamond of who Jesus is and we begin to look at all the different facets of who Jesus is. And uh, this morning, we are going to continue that. I hope you were encouraged last week uh, to hear from my good friend, Britton Lewis, as he walked us through John chapter 15. I'm thankful for Britton uh, really pushing us into Jesus and helping us abide in Jesus. As you know, if you've been here this year, our focus is really on abiding in Jesus this year. And we kind of taken Psalm 27, 4 as our theme verse. One thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And our hope is, is when we get to the end of 2023 and we're celebrating all the things that God has done this year, uh, the one thing that we want on the top of our list is we are able to say, in 2023, we abided in Jesus. And that's our hope, and that's our prayer, and that's really our thrust and what we're seeking to kind of push us into this year. And so I'm thankful to be walking through the Gospel of John together as we uh, continue to surface this picture of who Jesus is. We come to an interesting passage today uh, where we need to do a bit of work before we get started. And so if you have a Bible, I want you to open it because it's not going to be on the screen this morning. And if you're in like your digital Bible, you're opening your app, it may not have some of the footnotes that are necessary. And so there's there should be a Bible around you there, um, and I would encourage you, if you have a, a real Bible, a paper Bible, to bring it and, and to open it and to, to begin to devour this, this truth, and that's really what we're going to start with this morning. Um, most Bibles, when you open it to John chapter 7, verses 53 through chapter 8, verse 11, has in brackets this statement that says, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. How many of you have a paper Bible and it says something of that nature? Okay, either we don't have a lot of paper Bibles or we need to get you a better Bible, all right? It says... In John 7, verse 53 through 811, the earliest manuscripts do not include. And then if you look down in the footnotes, and if, if you're like, have like me, PTSD from having to format papers in high school and college, and it's like, I need you to use the Chicago Manual of Style or, or whatever. I'm like, that's an automatic deduction. I know I'm going to be starting with a 90 because I'm not formatting this thing, right? So, but you got to look in the footnotes. So I'm taking you back to school here. You got to look in the footnotes. You got to be, you got to look down at the bottom of your page and go, what is this referencing? And it says in my Bible, some manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. Others add the passage here or they add it after 736, or they add it after 2125, or after Luke 2138 with variations of this text. And so 
I, I'm, I'm a little bit confused. What, what do we do with this text this morning? How do we jump into this text this morning? And, uh, you know, I, I was out on vacation last week, and here I am, and I got two sermons for you this morning. That's what happens when I take a Sunday off. I give you two sermons the next Sunday. And honestly, we, we got to do some work in this text because our hope and our desire, it's important for us to understand what's happening here. And I think it's important before we just kind of jump into the text, we got to do some work around what do we do with this? What does it mean these weren't in the original manuscripts? Um, and, and ultimately, how do, we, how do we know that we can trust the Bible? Now, I can't quite possibly touch on all the different facets of Bible translations and how the Bible came to be, but I do want to address it. And so we're going to get nerdy here for a little bit. And those of you who like to get nerdy on history and kind of things like how this came to be, that's where we're going to be parked for about the first 15 minutes of this sermon, okay? That's sermon number one. How did the Bible come to be? We are here today, and we're holding the English Standard Version of the Bible. And so, this is the Bible that we teach out of. This is the translation that we teach out of. And, and so, how did we, in 2023, come to hold the English Standard Version of the Bible? And, and this is important, and this is essential, because we need to know and believe with extreme evidence that what we hold is... The, the reliable word of God, that these words are sufficient, that they are reliable, that they are authoritative. We need to know for certain that this is the word of God. And what I love about this is that anywhere that that's in question, the Bible discloses it. Now, I don't know of anything else in the world that discloses that, um, just so you know, like our witnesses may not be reliable, and so we just want to go ahead and disclose that and let you know that. No, the Bible tells us anywhere there's some discrepancies on whether or not this should be included in our Bible, the Bible tells us so because they want us to know with authority that this is the Word of God. And here's the hope and desire this morning, that if this is the Word of God, that you would submit your lives to it, that you would be changed by it, that you would look at this and go, this has authority over me. I must do and abide by what it says. And so if it's true, if, if, this, if this book is reliable, then how should it shape our lives? And so, how do we get here? Can we trust and hold that the, the, these are the very words of God? And, and that's what we're going to do. So, there's two passages of Scripture that I'm going to start with this morning. And, and the first one is, is kind of the product. How, do, how did we get this product? And it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 through 17, that all Scriptures breathed out by God. So, this is our Scripture. This has been breathed out by God. Okay, it's been breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And so that's how we originally receive the word of God. The word of God was breathed out by God. But how did that process take place? We have the product, the word of God, but what was the process? Well, 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 21 tells us how that process came to be. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit was the divine agent who carried or led or conducted 
interpreted the authors of Scripture so that, that what they were actually writing was God-breathed Scripture. In John MacArthur's book, Strange Fire, he says this, In that process, the Spirit of God filled their minds, souls, and hearts with divine truth, mingling it, it, mingling it sovereignly and supernaturally with their unique styles, vocabularies, experiences, and guiding them to produce a perfect, inerrant result. And so, this is what occurred. God spoke supernaturally through the power of the Holy Spirit, and man recorded now, when man recorded these, these were done by hand. They were writing these things. So when you, you see here, it talks about manuscripts. What is a manuscript? It means that someone actually had to record and write these down. And so long before the printing press in Amazon, where you get online and you're like, hey, I'd like to have the Gospel of John. If you wanted a copy of the Gospel of John, it had to be handwritten. And so these were the manuscripts. These were, these were meant to be, they, they had to be written word for word for word. And these were the jobs of scribes, okay? And so to the Jews, and we're looking at the Jewish culture here in the Gospel of John, and to the Jews, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament was the most sacred thing ever. And so the scribes who transmitted and copied the Hebrew scriptures were meticulous in detail. The word scribe literally means to count. And, and the reason why is because they would literally count word for word for word to make sure that there was not a detail missed. They counted each and every letter of their copies to make sure that the precise text was passed on. Okay. And so in the book, A General Introduction to the Bible, it says, although they were meticulous, they were nevertheless still human, and humans are prone to make mistakes. Regardless of the care they take or the strictness of rules under which they operate, the copyist task was made all the more difficult by sheer complexity of the Hebrew language and by the various ways in which potential errors could be introduced, even inadvertently into the copying process. There are at least seven important ways in which a copyist might change the text accidentally. Okay, so you can imagine as they're copying the text, if you, can, you can imagine you're sitting there, you have the gospel of John in front of you and you're writing the gospel of John word for word for word. And what are you doing? You're looking at the, the, the original manuscript and you're writing down a copy and you misspell something or sometimes the, the word of God was spoken and they would write it down. And so when it was copied, someone would speak it and maybe they would hear a word differently. Has anything ever been mispronounced that we may kind of come up with a, a, a different understanding of that word? And so they said that there was omission of letters or words. There was unwarranted repetitions that they would repeat words. Um, there was the reversal of two letters or words. There was errors of memory that they don't remember exactly what was said. There was errors of the ear they didn't hear. There was errors of the eye they're looking over or errors of judgment as they began to write this down. Now, this should maybe give rise to concern for some of you. You're like, well, I don't know. That sounds like we can't trust. The, the Bible's not reliable then, right? And, and if, if there's errors, if there's things, then we want to note those. And so if is what we hold today, has it been preserved? Is when we read the Gospel of John, can we look back to some original manuscripts? Do we have some copy that we can compare that to? And what's interesting is F.F. F. Bruce, who's a New Testament scholar, says, if the great number of manuscripts, because 
think about this. They were passed on manuscript after manuscript after manuscript, copy after copy after copy. It says, if it increases the number of scribal errors, it increases proportionally the means of correcting such errors. So that the margin of doubt left in the process of recovering the exact original wording is in truth remarkably small. So let me explain that. If we have only one manuscript, let's say we have two manuscripts of the Gospel of John. And one of them includes John 7.53 and one of them doesn't include John 7.53. Then what are we left to to, to think about that passage? We really, we're like, I don't know, it's 50-50 chance. Does it belong? Now, we have thousands of manuscripts to compare that to. And so when we think about the, the, the Bible and its reliability, we're not going off of just one or two manuscripts. Uh, the numbers that exist today are in the, in the thousands, tens of thousands. I believe, if my memory is, is if I'm able to remember today, it's, it's like 25,000. We have 25,000 manuscripts that we can look back and, and compare our text to. Now, let's... Let's kind of, I want to kind of walk through that. Um, What we don't have, we don't have the original parchment that John sat down and scribed this. But we do have copies and manuscripts that date within 50 years of the original, which is astonishing. And, and I would say this, here, here's a quote, it says, more than any other ancient Latin or Greek literature, more than anything that's out there. The Bible has tremendous historical and manuscript evidence for its reliability. It has far more manuscripts and far earlier manuscripts than any other piece of history. The New Testament has well over a thousand times as many manuscripts as the works of the average classical author. In other words, if we deny the reliability of the New Testament, we must far strongly deny every other historical record of ancient civilization. So if we go back, and I kind of, this is where we're going to get nerdy, all right? So if you look back and you go like, hey, so let's look at these ancient histories. No one's denying their existence. So we look at the works of Plato. And the time gap on on Plato's works is over 1,300 years to our original, like from the manuscript to when it was originally written. So it's written. So we have 1,300 years in difference, and the number of manuscripts surviving is seven. Okay, we think of Homer's Iliad. Time gap to earliest manuscript is 400 years. The number of manuscripts surviving is a thousand. Caesar's Gallic Wars. Time gap to earliest manuscript a thousand years. Number of manuscripts surviving ten. Livy's history on, of Rome, time gap to earliest manuscript, 400 years, number of manuscripts surviving, 27. Aristotle's Poetics was written in the 4th century BC. There are only five manuscripts in existence. The, the earliest copy we have is a 1,400-year gap. The New Testament, the New Testament alone, there is over 5,700 manuscripts that we have in our possession, and the time gap is less than 50 years. It's unbelievable. The evidence is astounding. Not only that, if all the manuscripts were destroyed, okay, get rid of the, the, all of the manuscripts, because if we, if we go beyond just the original language Greek manuscripts, like I said, there's about 20,000 to 25,000 ancient manuscripts that include Syriac, Coptic, Latin, 
Armenian, Gothic. We look at the other languages. There's over 25,000. If we got rid of all the, de- all the manuscripts that exist, the New Testament alone could be reproduced almost entirely from quotations of its writings of the early church leaders by the 3rd or 4th century. So get rid of all manuscripts. It's amazing. Now, as, as soon as these were written, the manuscript, what would happen is those manuscripts would be passed and they would be circulated amongst people, groups, churches, and those would be passed around. And so there, there wasn't, you know, in a sense, like we could always, no one had the one final source of the copy. So we could compare copies to copies to copies and make sure that we actually have the original writing. And, and so we, we think like as we saw that move forward, were there errors? Absolutely. As we talked about, there were small errors. None of these were doctrinal in nature. It may have been an inclusion of an extra word, a misspelling of a word, like I said. Um, 99% of the time, these were 100% in like, uh, comparison to one another. You would, you would find what we don't have is major discrepancies. And when we do have discrepancies, the Bible notes it as we mentioned. So simply put, there have been millions of man hours spent cross-checking manuscripts, and there remains only 1% of the New Testament words about which questions still exist. Today is one of them, which is why I was like, we need to, we're not going to surface this topic on, on, on many other days. And so today seems like a very important day to kind of understand if this text was not included in our original manuscripts, why should we teach it? And I'll get to that here in just a second. And so, um, as we continue on this journey of kind of like, I don't, I don't believe any of us in the room are Hebrew or Greek scholars. Um, I, I think it's important to go, well, how did that continue and how do we end up with the English translation today. And so for sake of time, I can't spend a whole lot of time talking about the canon of scripture, which basically means how did we come up with the 66 books of our Old and New Testament. Uh, But I will say this, the Jews accepted the Old Testament books that we have today as the word of God centuries before Jesus's birth. Jesus affirmed the divine origin of these same books, even quoting from many of them in most of his teachings. And so we, had, we have confirmation of the Old Testament. Um, what ended up happening is as false teachers began to rise up, uh, the, the early church decided we need to recognize, we need to come together and recognize what it is that actually is the word of God. That what is, what is it that truly fits within our canon of scripture? Canon literally means a measuring rod. What is the measuring in which we are going to measure? What, what consists of the word of God? And there was debate about that, but they basically had two basic tests for inclusion in the Bible. One, the test was was it an apostle? Was it written by an apostle or one closely associated with an apostle? And the second was the test of antiquity. Was it universally recognized by the church? And so no one just got to call a book and be like, hey, this is the word of God. We have different faiths and religions that say that. Like, hey, this is the word of God. It needs to be universally accepted by a group of people in antiquity and used throughout church history. And so by AD 367... We have our first list of New Testament books in, in their correct uh, order. And, uh, and then we saw three other councils endorse that list as well. And so 
what I'm going to do is I'm going to make some big jumps in history, okay? So we're going from AD 367 where we have the compiled list of New Testament books to 1330, all right? Wow, what a jump. A lot happened in that time frame. I don't have the opportunity to teach us on all the, the history of that time frame. But in 1330, when the, the Bible was originally written in Hebrew and Greek, there was not chapter divisions and, um, and, and verse uh, like numbers saying like, hey, this is chapter 7, verse 53. So those were added later. In 1330, we have the first chapter divisions, all right? In 1381, we, we hear of a man by the name of John Wycliffe and in defiance of the organized church, okay? There were a lot of people that believed they didn't want this book to get into the hands of people. Why? Because if people aren't able to read this book, then we can control them. And so the church was a little bit corrupt, right? And so John Wycliffe, at the cost of his own life, said, no, we need to get this book into the hands of people. The Bible should be permitted to read by people in their own language. They should be able to. And so he began to translate it and produce the first handwritten manuscripts of the entire Bible in English. And it would cost him his life. Eventually, you're going you're gonna to see is um, people have died to preserve the Bible from corruption, it's amazing to see this journey. We're going to get into the, the Reformation period, and the Reformation period would end up moving to a widespread expansion of the Bible into the, the hands of people. How do we get the Bible into the hands of people? And so we see in the early 1500s, we got the printing press. So we're getting to move from this idea of handwritten copies that we can actually mass produce. We have the printing press now. And so this is going to give access to people, to the Bible. And so William Tyndale uh, produced the first translation from Greek to English, and eventually he would be condemned as a heretic and burned at the stake. In 1560, we got the Geneva Bible. This is the first English Bible to add numbered verses. 1611, we got the King James Version. And then I'm going to jump from 1611 to 1947. 1947, what happened in 1947? Well, we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. We didn't find, I didn't find, uh, a Bedouin shepherd found in the caves of Qumran found these ancient manuscripts. What were on those ancient manuscripts? They were fragments from every book of the Old Testament except for the book of Esther. And the book of Isaiah dates from first century B.C., it's amazing. So we have some of our earliest manuscripts that were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, let me ask you a question. Has our understanding of the Greek and Hebrew language, has it improved or gotten worse over time? It's, it's gotten better. We're, we're more wise today about the Greek and Hebrew language. We have a greater understanding today of the Greek and Hebrew language than we did 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 1,000 years ago. And so... As we progress, our translations are getting better. Now, the question is, is do they actually agree to the original? And, and that's important. So on the, the um, spectrum of Bible translations, so we got the English Standard Version. We got, and I'm not talking about like other, um, like people, people who would claim other authoritative works. I'm talking about translations of the Word of God. And so you got, you know, New Living, New International, the Revised Standard Version, the English Standard Version, the King James Version. And what has happened is you have this spectrum 
from one side that is a very word-for-word translation to all the way to the other side, which is thought-for-thought. If you've ever read the Message Bible, the Message Bible is not a word-for-word translation. Now, here's my opinion. If God actually breathed out Scripture and and then the words are important, And so sometimes you'll hear a pastor kind of geek out and be like, hey, the Greek word. And it's not because a pastor wants to stand up there and look really smart in front of you guys. And he had to go look it up just like you do. So it's not like he had it in his back pocket. He just maybe throws that out there to kind of impress a few people. Are you impressed by it? Probably not. All right. But the words are important. And the reason why pastors throw that out there is because the very words of God are essential. And we need to know, we want to know that we have the very words of God. And so What's interesting is we have to ask ourselves, how did the English Standard Version come to be? Here's what I would say. The ESV is an essentially literal translation that seeks as far as possible to capture the precise wording of the original text and personal style of each Bible writer. As such, its emphasis is on a word-for-word correspondence at the same time taking into account differences of grammar, syntax, and idiom between current literary English and original language. Thus, it seeks to be transparent to the original text, letting the reader see as directly as possible the structure and meaning of the original. And so, uh, when we think about this, what, how, how did this come to be, the English Standard Version? Well, in the very front of my Bible, it tells me that tells me, to this end, each word and phrase in the ESV has been carefully weighed against the original Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. That's important because you ever played the game telephone and you start passing something down? Eventually, you're off to like, we eat bananas on a Saturday. Like, it doesn't make any sense, right? And eventually, things get... so. We got to go back to the source. And so that's what they've done. They've gone back to these original manuscripts. Like I said, dated 50 years after Christ. And and we have this this, uh, uh, process described to us that it was carefully weighed against the original Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek to ensure the fullest accuracy and clarity and to avoid under-translating or overlooking any nuance of the original text. And so there were 14 people on the translation oversight committee. There were 50 translation review scholars. There were 54 people on an advisory council. And, And we may ask ourselves the question like, well, you know, What about other translations? Other translations are helpful as well. I'm just saying, this is what we teach from. And the reason why is because it's very literal word-for-word translation. And so, it leads us to the point, is, is the Word of God reliable? I hope that I've convinced you to understand that it is reliable. It is trustworthy. And there is a massive amount of evidence that we can go back and look to of going, what we hold today is truly the Word of God. And so, what about the passage that we're at today? And that's, that's what we have to ask. Like, should we teach this passage? Now, I'll say a few things um, into uh, maybe why we shouldn't teach the passage. And I'll talk about why we should teach the passage, okay? John Piper gave a list of six things of, of why this passage is in question. First one is this. This story is missing from all Greek manuscripts of John before the 5th century, Okay? That's good to know. 
Two, all the earliest church fathers omit this passage in commenting on John and pass directly from 752 to 812. The third thing is, if you read from 752 to 812, it actually flows quite nicely. So it seems like the storyline continues. This seems like an abrupt change. So it doesn't seem like it's in the right place. Um, Number four, no Eastern church father cites the passage before the 10th century when dealing with this gospel. Five, when the story starts to appear in manuscript copies of the gospel of John, it shows up in three different places. So we don't even know where the right place for it to be. And its style and vocabulary is more unlike the rest of John's gospel than any other paragraph in the gospel. And so it doesn't seem fitting with John. Now, Most New Testament scholars do believe that this is a true historical story. Many believe that this story happened. Now, just because you have a good story doesn't mean that we should teach on that good story, right? Just because a story is true doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't maybe carry the weight of authoritative as the word of God. Now, here's what I would say. No major doctrines are in question. Everything that is true about the nature and character of Jesus as described in 753 through 811 is true about the nature and character of Jesus in all the rest of the Bible. There's not a characteristic of Jesus that surfaces in this passage that we have not already seen or experienced or taught on. There is is no aspect of the story here that would cause us to come to some other conclusion about the nature of God, uh, the nature of sin, the nature of righteousness, the nature of of, uh, the characteristic of the Pharisees and scribes described here. Uh, The Bible already fills that out. And so as John Piper said when he taught this passage, he basically goes, I'm going to use the rest of Scripture as authoritative to show you how this this very story could be true as well. And so we should have some questions about this text. There was our 15-minute first sermon, all right? Second sermon. We should have some questions about this text. Number one, why did it surface? And if it did surface, why did it go away? Why do we have some, some questions? Um, what is Jesus trying to teach through it? Is it true? If it's true, how should it change how we live? How does it change how we might experience grace? How does it affect how we pursue righteousness? And what I want you to see is there's three different groups of people or people in the story. And I want you to identify with one of these people in the story today because, um, and I'll, I'll give you a, a kind of a, a um, the answer is not Jesus. Okay, so don't identify with Jesus. None of us are Jesus. All right, so we get a choice, like we're either the Pharisees or scribes or the woman, all right? And, but we're thankful for Jesus, and we're thankful for the work of Jesus in this passage. And so as we jump in, I want us to see these three people or groups and, and ultimately try to kind of come into an agreement. How do we see ourselves in light of them? And so in John chapter 7, verse 53, um, we see a group of people that need to be convicted of their sin. This is the scribes and Pharisees. And maybe that's some of us in the room today. We come, we walk in, and there's a sense, maybe we wouldn't call it self-righteousness or pridefulness, but we believe we're in the right. We believe that we're good. We believe that, you know, when it comes to keeping the law, when it comes to religious performance, when it comes to activity, like we're top-notch. Everything's looking sharp. We're, we're good. And, and Jesus is going to move into a posture of, of helping them see their sin. They're, they were blinded to their sin. And, uh, and I think that's for many reasons that we'll get to. Um, and maybe that's you this morning. Maybe we don't feel a full weight 
weightiness of our sin. We don't see our sin as a big deal. We minimize sin. We, we look past sin. We excuse away sin. We blame sin. And we don't take ownership. We see ourselves as a victim rather than going, I'm, I'm responsible for the sin in my life. And in John chapter 7, verse 53 through 8 9, it says, They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down, and they taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? And so they're really putting Jesus to test here. And they're, they're asking for Jesus' response to this. And they said this to test him. They're, they were sent out to trap Jesus in this, this debate. They, they hope to bring some charge to bring against him. You think about it, they're, they're abusing this woman. They're using this woman to make a point. Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before them. Now, the question is, we got to ask ourselves, is, is this truly in the law of Moses? The fact that a person should be stoned. For committing adultery. And yeah, we, we read in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22. says, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Now, their, their intention, so it is, it is in the law. We see that. And, and Jesus doesn't dismiss what they're bringing. Jesus is super wise, so he knows how to engage in this conversation. But they're, they're, they're ultimately attempting to trap Jesus. Their goal is not to uphold the law. If, if their reasoning was, and how do we know that? Well, if, if they were to truly uphold the law, we have to ask the question, where's the man? Right? Like adultery, Consist of two people. And so where's the man in this situation? It says the woman was caught in adultery. The woman is brought before and, and, and brought in this very public environment and is being used to serve the purposes of the scribes and Pharisees. And ultimately what Jesus begins to um, lead them through is ultimately helping them recognize and acknowledge their own sinfulness. And he does it by asking really pointed, specific, wise questions. Jesus is so wise. In one sense, they're, they're going, does he dismiss sin? Does he, uh, does he fail to uphold the law of Moses? And then we can, you know, we'll trap him that way. And, and will he harm this woman. And then he's not generous. He's not this, this, you know, God of compassion, this God of mercy and grace. And so it, it's kind of this, this moment to test him, to trap him. And, and ultimately what Jesus leads them to do is experience conviction of their own sin. He doesn't say, you don't get to stone her. You don't get to throw a stone at her. 
He says, let him who is without sin go first. And it's in that moment that they have to take assessment, take account of their own sinfulness. And you know, and I know, we all sin. And so none of us could condemn her. And the only person who could condemn her is the one without sin, Jesus, and Jesus doesn't condemn her. Now, again, what Jesus is surfacing here and calling these people to conviction is not only seen in this passage in John chapter 7, verse 53. We see Jesus teach in Matthew chapter 7. He says, judge not that you be not judged. For with judgment you pronounce you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a a log in your own eye? He says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And so there's a sense of acknowledgement of sin. And I'm just wondering as we walk in today, is there there an awareness of, of your sinfulness? And I think that's one of the areas that a lot of us love to avoid. I don't want to think about my sin. I don't want to think about how I've fallen short. I don't want to think about how I continue to fail over and over and over again. Instead of a trial, which is the natural course of what would happen if Deuteronomy chapter 22, 22 uh, was to surface... A trial would be proposed. That's not here. They bring her out publicly. This is a prejudice against this woman. And I find it interesting, and and I think it's, it's worth speculating. Why does it say that the older left first? And my best guess is, is the older that you get, the more aware you are of your sin. So the old guys go, oh, man, I'm out, right? The young guys are still there like, oh, maybe I should follow those guys. And it's just a sense of of going, the, the longer we live, the more we recognize we're sinful. My question is, what do you do with your sin? There's two tracks that are described here. One is we minimize it and act as if it doesn't exist and doesn't need to be dealt with. The other is we sit in it and we feel shameful and guilty for. And both of those need to be brought to Jesus. And so they walk away, it says, from the one person who could set them free. Jesus acknowledges their sin, they, they see themselves as sinful, but they don't run to Jesus. And I think my warning to us today is we can be blind to our sin. And when we're blind to our sin, we don't run to Jesus. We walk away from Jesus. When we're blind to our sin, when we're not convicted of our sin, we tend to lack grace. We tend to abuse people. We tend to hurt others, use others, and abuse others. That's what they did with this woman. 
They brought her in. They marched her in in a very humiliating scene to use her, to abuse her. When we're blind to our sin, we lack grace. And so he says, let he who is without sin. And I just wonder, could we just take assessment of our own life this morning? In areas where we've fallen short. And may it push us to Jesus who can set us free. Another person we may identify with in this story is, is the woman. We read in John 8, 9 through 11. But when they heard about it, they, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. My question is, is when your sin is exposed and brought to the light, where do we go? Where do we run? I think for many of us, when sin's exposed and things are brought to the light, we're often tempted to ride, uh, to run and hide in shame. But how do we see Jesus in this passage? Jesus invites us to stay. He doesn't abandon us. He doesn't condemn us. Instead of condemnation, he gives grace. And the more sinful you know yourself to be, the more your understanding and your awareness of how deep you truly need Jesus is. And so awareness of sin pushes us towards Jesus. And so we see this woman, this woman, we see some who need to be convicted of sin, who need to be aware of sin. We see this woman, she's fully aware of her sin. She needs to be set free from sin. And some can identify with her. We think about in her sinfulness, Jesus calls it sin. He identifies it as sin. But in our sinfulness, we can often hide. When deep down in reality, we want to be set free. So where do you go? In shame, we can cover it. We can hide from it or Jesus can free us from it. And the reason why most of us hide is to avoid disapproval, to avoid being abandoned. And what would happen if we truly believe Jesus won't abandon us? Jesus won't leave us. Jesus won't condemn us. I think for many of us, we would truly, we would want to run and we would want to be set free. Jesus doesn't condemn he doesn't condemn. He wants to set free. Maybe we're not concerned about how Jesus will receive this, but maybe we're looking down our row and we go, I'm wondering how my neighbors will perceive this. I want to hide in my sin because I don't necessarily know that the environment that I'm in would be a community of grace. And I, I just, as I think about this story play out, I wonder how we would respond to seeing this scene. How Church of the Valley would respond in the scene. Some of us would maybe focus more on grace. Some of us would focus more on truth and upholding truth. And 
I think my hope in this is that, yes, some of us need to be convicted of sin. You've heard me say before, uh, we have two roles. We have to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. That's kind of like what Jesus is doing here. He's afflicting the comfortable scribes and Pharisees. He's comforting the afflicted, the woman who's brought in. And so there's two sides that are, that are needing to play out here. But I'm just wondering what it would look like for us to truly be a community of grace. There's aspects I see in the, the world that I go, man, they are more celebratory of people taking steps. I think, I think uh, I haven't thrown a CrossFit analogy in in a long while, but I'm like, I've said this before. The CrossFit community models more of what it means to be a community of grace than the church does at times. What do I mean by that? Well, because if you're dead last huffing and puffing coming in, guess what? Everyone is sitting there celebrating you, cheering you in. And we don't do that in the church. Like, I, I just wonder, what would it look like for us to be a church that celebrates the steps? We're applauding. We're cheering one another on rather than bringing condemnation. Jesus doesn't condemn, but yet the church condemns one another. And I would say for us to condemn means that we haven't truly experienced the grace of being set free that Jesus offers. So, I hope that this would be a safe place for us to struggle, a safe place for people to fall, a safe place for people to not have it all together. And if it's not, it will be a culture of hiding and shame. We got to be honest. We all struggle. We need to get in community with others in this room and grow to trust one another so we can share those struggles. I hear too often testimonies of people in our church who say, man, I, I think I'm the only one struggling. And I'm like, no, everybody else is just hiding. If we're going to be set free, we got to expose those areas. We got to come and confess those. And I love our prayer gatherings on Wednesday mornings. We take time every single week to confess as we read through the text, to confess to one another our sinfulness and lack of belief in what we're reading. And it's a healthy practice to come have an awareness of our sin that it would push us to Jesus. Jesus doesn't condemn. Jesus comes to set us free from the sin. And a side note, the word that he says there, not condemned, the fact that he doesn't condemn her is what actually empowers her to sin no more. Okay? The last thing is, and in the last group that you see in this, is Jesus. And so we see a group of people that need to be convicted of their sin. We see a person, the woman, who needs to be set free from sin. And we see Jesus who will be condemned for sin. In John chapter 8, verse 11, she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And so what do we see at play in this? We see the combination of both grace and truth. Now, again, this is not the first time we see this aspect of Jesus' character of grace and truth. In John chapter 1, verse 13 to 14, we started this journey. It says, Who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Who, who is He? Full of grace, full of truth. What we see in this is Jesus doesn't condemn, but calls for a pursuit of holiness. And I think that's important because Jesus doesn't just 
forgive sin and say, go about your way. Jesus says, I don't condemn you. And may that empower you to go and sin no more. Jesus gives grace. Which is one of the reasons that St. Augustine actually said, one of the reasons that this passage might have been omitted from manuscripts is that they thought that this would actually give license to sin and cause people to commit adultery. They would abuse the grace of Jesus. John chapter 3, verse 17. Again, we don't see this uh, just in John 7, 53. John 3, 17, it says, For God did not send his, world, his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Romans 8, 1, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, just because there's no condemnation doesn't mean we avoid talking about sin, right? We hate talking about sin. I type the word sin into my iPhone and guess what? It autocorrects. It's like, you don't want to talk about sin. You mean the sun, right? It's like anything we can do to avoid sin. Let's not talk about it. Surely you don't mean sin. And here's the thing. If we are on the grace side, it's easy to minimize morality or truth. If we're on the truth side, it's going to be easy to minimize uh, grace and compassion. And so in the room, we're going to have grace people. We're going to have truth people. There's going to be people who overemphasize grace. There's going to be people who overemphasize the truth. Jesus is a full embodiment of both. He walks full of grace, full of truth. And I love this. And I think that's one of the tensions that we have to walk in, right? I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. I'm like, I, I, I love the focus on him not condemning me. That's great. The go and sin no more part, eh, that seems kind of challenging, right? Kevin DeYoung says this, because God's new world is free from every stain or hint of sin, it's hard to imagine how we could enjoy heaven without holiness. As J.C. Ryle reminds us, heaven is a holy place. The Lord of heaven is a holy God. The angels are holy creatures. The inhabitants are holy saints. Holiness is written on everything in heaven and nothing unholy can enter into this heaven. And so we think about why does Jesus save us? Why was Jesus willing to be condemned for our sin? Well, he loves us, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. Absolutely. He, he saved us for his glory, Ephesians 1, 6. It says, to the praise of his glorious grace. Absolutely. But he also saved you so that you might be holy, so that you would go and sin no more. Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God of our Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? So that we would be holy and blameless before him. So what Jesus says in this passage is, you're guilty. He calls it sin. But I don't condemn you. You're a sinner. I don't condemn you. And only Jesus is, is able to make that because the fact is, he is the only one who's going to pay the cost for a statement like, I don't condemn you. Because the punishment that the woman deserved, the punishment that you and I deserve, we are all guilty. Jesus will ultimately take on himself. Jesus will be condemned for our sin. 
We see the nature and character of Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees. The scribes and Pharisees want to abuse this woman. The Pharisees and scribes want to use this woman. Jesus is willing to die for this woman. He says, I don't condemn you. So let me give you application. I know I've gone over time. Let me give you some takeaways. One, if you're here this morning, don't hide in your shame. Come to Jesus who gives grace and truth. We see that illustrated in this passage. We see it illustrated all through the gospel of John. Jesus will set you free. He'll set you free. Second thing is this. We need to know that grace and truth are both demonstrations of his love. Again, we tend to focus on the grace like, oh man, that's a, he shows his love. He shows his love by telling us the truth. To reveal those areas of our self-destructive behavior, where he reveals that to us is his love and grace and mercy to us. When I think about my kids, I think about my family, I think about like God has given us, um, God has given us rules in life to lead to our flourishment and, and to actually have life. And, and so we have to ultimately go, like, do we, we got God's way, we got the world's way, we got my way, what do I do? And do we see God's way, his truth, as a way of him loving us? I think uh, there's been a lot of people who've talked about parenting and talk about like the idea of rules and relationship. We think about this of grace and truth. And there's a, an idea of going like, when we think about you give rules, you got rules without relationship and it equals rebellion. We know families have grown up and it's just all rules and there's no relationship. There's no love experienced in this family. And I'm just going to rebel against those rules. Well, the other side is where there is relationship and no rules, no truth, no guidance. It ends up, you look back and you're resentment. You're, you're resentful. You resent that like, man, why wasn't I instructed? Like if you knew the way to live, if you knew the pathway, why wouldn't you teach that? Jesus has given us both. Jesus gives grace and mercy and gives us the truth by which to live, to be set free. It's good news. Grace propels you to live into a new way of life. So when we think of going and sinning no more, we're like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, I'm going to knock this out by my own strength. And the idea is you need to look at how the flow of this passage, it's being set free from condemnation that then empowers her to go and sin no longer. I like the way John Piper said, he says, don't commit adultery anymore, not mainly because you fear stoning, but because you've met God and you've been rescued by his grace and saved by his grace. See, the gospel changes us and we never move beyond grace. We need to focus on the grace and the good news of the gospel, that you're not condemned, that you can come to Jesus that he won't abandon you, that he won't leave you. And that actually empowers you to live into a new way of life. Lastly, I would say, those who have experienced grace, extend grace. We live in a critical culture. You don't have to look very far to find critics these days, right? May our church be a, a community of grace that celebrates the steps that people are making, that celebrates 
where people are growing, that celebrates how people are stepping in and living into this new way of life. Will we fall? Yeah, absolutely. Do we need people to correct us? Absolutely. But as people who have experienced the grace, set down your stones. Quit throwing them at people and love one another. Walk in a culture of grace because you've experienced grace. All right? Let's pray together. What a journey. I told you you would get two sermons today, right? Don't let me take off another Sunday. Father, thanks for your word. Thank you that it has been preserved. Thank you for, yeah, just the many men and women who have sacrificed their lives to preserve the good news of your word. Lord, thank you that there are people who are so passionate about the word of God being preserved that they would sacrifice everything. Lord, I pray that your word would shape us and change us as a community, that we would truly believe it's reliable, trustworthy, that it has authority, that we would live our life in light of it. Lord, thank you for this passage that we see illustrated all throughout the gospel of John. And whether or not it's meant to be something that we focus on or, and we see, Lord, that you, you want all of us to have an awareness of our sin. You want all of us to understand so that we would run to you. And so I pray this morning that whether we need to be convicted of our sin, maybe we're fully aware of our sin this morning and we just want to be set free from it. Lord, that wherever we are in this room, that we would see that Jesus, you're going to be condemned for sin, that we can come to you, that we don't have to hide in it and we don't have to dismiss it, that we can come to you with it. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you would set us free, that there would be a culture of grace and mercy that exists here, that we'd be willing to expose the truth about who we are to one another and be prayed for and be encouraged. Lord, may we know today that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We are fully accepted, fully loved. You call us family. And may we know that you call us to holiness. So Lord, help us to flee from every area of sin and do so by the power of the gospel. We pray and ask in Jesus' name, amen.